Hello everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government for this event on whether the use of WhatsApp in Whitehall and Westminster is a good thing. My name is Tim Durrant, I'm Associate Director here and with some of my colleagues I wrote a paper earlier this year looking at the use of WhatsApp across government. Um, we knew from our conversations with people inside government that WhatsApp was widely used, whether that's for political plots or commissioning work or organising illegal parties. Um, and so we wanted to look into the details and the implications of its use. Um, it's convenient, it's useful, everyone across the country uses it, but we think it's important that it's used properly, so that decisions are properly documented and informed, and that communication is transparent and recorded properly where, where needed. Um, as I say, we've, we've already seen this week how much interest and value there is in, in government WhatsApp messages. Um, so it seemed like it's a, it's a perfect time to discuss this issue, and I'm really happy to be joined by a brilliant and very experienced panel to talk about this. Uh, we have Lord Bethel of Romford, who was the former Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department of Health and Social Care, Hugo Rifkind, columnist and leader writer for The Times, and my colleague, Dr. Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow here at the Institute for Government. Um, I'm gonna ask questions of the panel, we'll have a bit of a discussion, but there'll be plenty of time for questions from the room and from those of you uh, online. So if you are watching online, please feel free to send in your questions from now. Uh, I've got a, an iPad here and I'll be able to read those out. Um, and quick housekeeping point as well is um, we will be live tweeting. My colleague Peter at the front here is live tweeting. So follow uh, IFG events using the has hashtag IFG WhatsApp. Uh, if you are online or in the room, feel free to join the conversation there. Um, with that, let's get going. So Lord Bethel, if I, if I can, before we begin properly, I just want to acknowledge um, there is an ongoing court case and uh, information commissioner investigation uh, into uh, the use of WhatsApp during your time at DHSC. So there are inevitably going to be limits on what you can say about that time. But to start, what are your views on the use of WhatsApp in government? Is it a good thing? Well, um, Tim, thanks very much. Thank you for raising this issue. I mean, I'm, I'm going to make the case that it is absolutely a good thing. Um, I think it's worth remembering that there are two billion people using WhatsApp around the world, and there are a ton more using the other instant messaging platforms. And the reason why it's so huge is because it is so, so useful. And this is a revolution that has been driven by working people and families uh, all around the world, and it is used in hospital wards, fire stations, garrisons, school staff rooms up and down the country. This hasn't been because of some top-down edict from government. This has been a revolution from the shop floor, from the school gate, from the nursing station, and at times, private office. And, where, and this is because businesses and government have failed to create the systems that let people work effectively together. So people have taken matters into their own hands, and they've embraced a new technology that helps them to do their jobs better and quicker. And I absolutely embrace that revolution. We could not have responded to the pandemic as effectively as we did without this kind of modern communication tool. And in that, I include Teams, Zoom, and the other uh, communications tools that we used. When the virus hit our shores, we had to massively scale up public health services. And that led to a sudden and urgent need for collaboration between people who had not worked together before, across silos, across agencies, across departments. 
And if you'd gone into the DHSC HQ in this time, you'd have seen people from Army Logistics, the Intelligence Services, consultancies like Deloitte, Cabinet Office Procurement, PhD epidemiologists, NHS clinicians, volunteers, all manner of people. And they were fighting hard to stand up new testing, uh, to, get our, uh, to support our hospitals and social care, to roll out the vaccine program. And I can tell you for sure, they were not all on the same email server. To give you a vivid example, standing up the Hotel Quarantine Borders project required phenomenal creativity to stitch together a system based on flight booking data, hotel room management systems, visa requirements, airport check-in stations, passenger landing forms, cybersecurity, and a whole bunch of other. And that required collaboration across many, many different agencies. We wouldn't have had the agility to do that in time if we'd relied on email and the telephone. WhatsApp, Teams, and the others were absolutely critical to standing up an entirely new service in just six weeks, an accomplishment that was uh, an award-winning achievement. So in other words, what messaging and, and similar apps do is that they for help forge collaborations between teams, they help us to share up-to-date information and work towards agile responses, and thirdly, they help encourage creativity by sharing uh, ideas. Now, if we had adhered to the old way of doing things, it wouldn't have happened so quickly. When I became a minister, uh, I uh, needed to see dashboards from NHS colleagues in order to do my job. And it took me six months to get an NHS email login. And I said this to one of my predecessors. And they came back to me and said, oh my goodness, that is absolutely staggering. You got an e NHS email. How on earth did you manage to get that? <laughs> That is the pace at which the old tech works, and we can't forge an effective government if we move at that pace. And it's not just about times of emergency that government needs more creativity, agility, and collaboration. The challenges our country face increasingly require complex and prompt responses. Things like the children's cabinet and the obesity strategy require cross-cutting solutions and better working practices. Now, I acknowledge that new technologies often create suspicion. Uh, Napoleon worried that a nationwide system of semaphore would encourage revolution, and therefore he restricted it for its use only to the military. Through the ages, people who fear conspiracies have often invested those fears in technology, and that's true today. There were many who were worried that would be conspiracies in government during the pandemic. And when they couldn't find the evidence for their theories, despite exhaustive searches, they assumed that somehow it had gone missing. Now, that's a very, very dangerous mentality. Just because the conspiracy theorists do not, expect, do not find what they expected, it doesn't mean their conspiracies were right. Quite the opposite. And we should not prioritize policymaking around their false assumptions. I also recognize that many Westminster types feel WhatsApp is most useful for cycling gossip and tips. And there is that element, I don't deny it. But that's not what most people use WhatsApp for. I've got four children, four school gate WhatsApps, and a wild swimming club that I couldn't manage without my very, very square, ungossipy WhatsApp groups. So to turn to your report, can I just reiterate that we absolutely should not let the conspiracy theorists and the gossips impose their fears on progress. But we should definitely embrace transparency, accountability, uh, and archiving best practice. And I absolutely applaud the findings of your report in that matter. I totally agree that some of our regulations need to be cleared up. 
And I expect that to be one of the findings of the forthcoming ICO investigation. And I totally agree that there are clear issues in parts of government about how clear and consistent the framework policies and procedures are in practice, and that um, this leaves it difficult for ministers, officials, and others to follow. Uh, I remember the same points were made when there was a row about email replacing paperwork, and some people predicted all sorts of calamities and collapse of trust. But after all the benefits of email, would we really go back to paper and vellum? So I also agree that the formal decision-making and detailed submissions that communicate options to ministers are rightly the matter for a formal, clear-cut red box system. But I would be really wary of any impression that the very purpose of communication is to record events for future analysis. Most communication is done to achieve complex objectives, and that should be our priority. I'm very skeptical that every tiny little exchange is worth keeping, whereas much of it is ephemeral and part of the non-verbal communication that would have been lost in the ether previously and completely overlooked. And I would remind everyone that the Freedom of Information Act was first drafted at the end of the last century, before email was widespread and before instant messaging and video conferencing had been invented. So that itself needs a serious update. Now, where some people fear an erosion of document-keeping standards, I see a massive mission creep to take advantage of the explosion of digital communications to try to capture every sort of ephemeral dialogue that would have previously happened by the water cooler or on a post-it note. And without investing the capability to analyze and contextualize what is captured, that can be a counterproductive endeavor. So what I'd really like to see from the Institute for Government is a report on the use of better digital communications to improve operational effectiveness. It should consider the huge jeopardy if we don't embrace the advantages of modern technology. In other words, a mindset that assumes that everyone is hiding something will fail to address the massive potential for improving government performance. It will, in doing so, contribute to a culture of fear around modern digital communication that will cause a setback for good government. To wrap up, here's one specific measure that I will depart from the recommendations of your report. The report calls for mandatory use of government devices. That would be a convenient idea in some senses, but only if government devices kept up with modern standards. The reason why people bring their own device, whether that's in business or in government, is that typically they're better and more convenient. That is, not, um, that is not just my personal view. That is the view of millions of government employees and business people who use their own phones rather than the ones provided because they find it easier. That is the democratization of communication. Yes, we must have an eye for security and confidentiality. We must have the trust of the public. But we should also listen to those people who find solutions for themselves, rather than snuff out innovation with clumsy regulations driven by the fear of change. Brilliant. Well, thank you. That's a, a brilliant start to the discussion and lots of stuff that we will pick up in, in subsequent um, points. But just to, to follow up, I guess, as you say, you know, this isn't new. Email, people had similar concerns about email. Also, WhatsApp isn't new. WhatsApp's been around for a good decade now mm -hmm. or more. Do, do you think government should be providing more guidance to how it's used? Or do you think there should be kind of, should people just have a better sense of common sense about how this is used? Why, why don't people, or why is there a sense that people don't think this message is important, these communications are important? Well, the government. 
I, I, do, I have a lot of faith and trust in people's common sense, and I saw huge endeavors undertaken in order to do things thoughtfully, sensibly, and within the rules. I mean, even during the height of the pandemic, um, officials went to great lengths to preserve documentation, to document meetings and uh, decisions. And actually, when you look, as I have done in great detail, uh, at what has, been, what has come out of the processes, even when we were moving at great pace, there is a huge amount of material um, that people have very, very thoughtfully curated. So the, the assumption that there is, it is all spiraled out of control is not one that I completely agree with. But yes, I absolutely think that there should be um, a regulation brought up to date. A lot of the very important guidance uh, dates back from 2013, and, it was, and some of the guidance is clearly contradictory, which your report points out, uh, and I know uh, from my own experience. So yes, regulation does need to be brought up to date, but it shouldn't smother or assume that everyone uh, is trying to hide something. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Hugo, uh, James mentioned about gossip and mm -hmm. tittle-tattle, so we're here to talk about... Uh, oh, <laughs> <Hugo>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here I am. We're here to talk about uh, what's up in government, yep. but I think it's fair to say it's definitely been a good thing for political journalism. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, largely, yes, it's great fun when, you know, uh, WhatsApp groups all, are all very leaky, political WhatsApp groups are very leaky, screenshots leak, they get onto Twitter, everyone can sort of have a laugh about them. My favourite, uh, last year, the it was the conservative clean global Brexit WhatsApp group when uh, this, this uh, clip went round of it. It just had the, had the words, Steve Baker removed Nadine Dorries, followed by Steve Baker giving a thumbs up <laughs> underneath. And um, I write a column in the Times where I sort of, you know, mock the idea of political WhatsApp groups quite often. And about, I'd say, roughly a million people sent me that clip and said, this looks like it was written by you, which was uh, delightful. Um, so it's great in that it does, it's very useful for journalists because it's leaky, because it gives people an idea of, of what, it gives you an idea of what people are thinking, and because when people communicate with WhatsApp, they communicate quite uh, informally, or in a more informal way. So if it leaks, it's a bit more informative. I mean, I, I wrote, a few years ago, I wrote a column, sounds makes sound insane, but I wrote a column that I'm likening uh, Brexit to a, a submarine made out of cheese as an impossible task. And I was told not long afterwards that there was a, a WhatsApp group had sprung up in Downing Street called Cheese Submarine Group. <laughs> now, like, no, no one was ever going to have a sort of cheese submarine committee room in the House of Commons. You know? <laughs> so you do get this sort of this peak of informality in there. The flip side, though, is, um, I mean, WhatsApp, it replaces two things in two directions. It replaces informal conversations that in the past would not be documented for ministers. But it also replaces more official communications. Mm. It replaces, like, memos and, uh, and, 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 and notes and note-taking in meetings, because the meetings don't even happen. They just happen as, as WhatsApp chats. And, and while, while WhatsApp is supposed to be governed by freedom of information, it is governed by freedom of information, it's quite, it's quite hard to do. You know, um, I mean, messages get lost very easily. Think of Rebecca Vardy's agent dropping her phone in the sea. You know, I mean, that's, I'm sure there are many parallels. We just had Sue Gray's report this week, and yes, there have been lots of WhatsApp messages in there, but anyone who thinks that's a really true and accurate catalogue of every communication about this sent within two shit-faced years is probably killing, kidding themselves. You know, so there's, there's, a lot, um, there's a lot that sort of, there's a lot that doesn't get recorded, not always for malign reasons. I think if you asked me to provide a record of every message I've sent to, well, I was gonna say to my colleagues, but even, even to, to, you know, MPs, to, to, um, to, to, to government ministers over the course of the last 10 years. I'd probably struggle to do so by going through WhatsApp because mm. it's just not set up, to, you don't archive to, to find it like that. Mm. Um, I would say, I mean, it's not directly to your question, but 
I worry less about WhatsApp in government and more about WhatsApp in, uh, among MPs. It's not quite the same thing. Um, we know that so, look, social media radicalizes people. WhatsApp, in other contexts, has a, a huge fake news problem. WhatsApp has been directly linked to the spread of fake news, to radicalization, to even genocide in, you know, in, in, in Burma and parts of India and so on. Um, and, um, and while it might sound hyperbolic, MPs aren't that different. MPs are members of many, many WhatsApp groups, and they, get, they genuinely do get radicalized by them. Most of, the, most of the groups you hear about among parliamentary parties, really what they are before they're anything else is, what, is WhatsApp groups, and they're kind of they're informal whipping operations uh, in competition with the party whipping operations. But they're much more effective because the way these communications... Like, these communications don't work like I pretend they work when I take the piss out of them. People don't talk past each other and and make fools of themselves in that kind of way. They compete with each other. They radicalize mm -hmm. each other. That's just, I don't mean that as an extreme way, but that is just what conversations in the, on these sorts of mediums do. And so you end up with much, much more sort of hardening of political positions, much more groups than parties that, that are very hard for the party to coordinate, to deal with each other, to are very much against compromise because compromise, because it's very performative. And, uh, and while that probably is good for journalism, <laughs> I don't think it's good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Kath, if I can turn to you. So, you mentioned people have always had informal conversations, mm -hmm. whether in the Commons, uh, in government, people sort of uh, chatting in corridors rather than around a table and formally documenting it. What is WhatsApp changing, both about communication and about how government is done? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, yes, they have. There's always been things missing from the archives. Uh, I spent, you know, uh, years of my life uh, in the National Archives looking at, at papers from the 1950s uh, through to much more recently, and uh, you know there's always stuff missing from it, and not just because there are parts of the conversations that aren't covered there, but also because the weeding process of what goes on, there are lots of things that, that don't end up in it. Um, and yes, the proverbial uh, sort of conversations in corridors, actually the one that we mention in the report is the idea that uh, you know, is a favourite thing for ministers to do, to turn up early to a cabinet or a cabinet committee or whatever, because it's a good chance to sort of nobble the prime minister or, or the chancellor. Obviously, after Rishi Sunak's recent experience, fewer of them may wish to turn up early to a cabinet meeting, but, but still, that's part and parcel of being in government. Um, and I, I also do take the point about the fact that actually a lot of the way in which the civil service has historically worked, it... Some of it feels very 19th century. Um, and I, you know, we have been thinking at the moment about the impact of the way uh, the civil service develops submissions into to ministers. Um, is that the right way for the civil service to communicate with, with ministers? Do they get the best out of it? Is it the right way to sort of you know, throw around ideas, think about the issue, communicate risks, all that kind of stuff? Are there more modern ways in which they can communicate? But the problem is, you do come back to this issue of you've got to somehow record what's happened because people need to know within government, forget about, uh, you know, FOI, the historians or anything like that, even just to get good decisions, people in government need to know what's been decided, who decided it, who's going to take some action from it, and sometimes what was the basis on which we took a decision because it might be that you're suddenly up in front of uh, parliament or you know, speaking to your backbenchers or somebody trying to excuse it. If you've got different accounts of why something happened, that is the way in which um, lots of mess can, can occur. Um, I mean, the other thing that I'd say in terms of sort of the informality and so forth, you've got to remember that is there in other ways. Um, 
anyone who's looked at the Margaret Thatcher years in government knows that the best thing about her papers is her scribbling in the sidelines, you know, the sort of no or, or whatever. So the kind of stuff that comes out from WhatsApp, the ephemeral, if you will, that actually is part of what historians need to know about, is valuable to history. Um, but the other thing I would say, so and it is great. Look, we, we talk to you know, lots of people, uh, ministers, journalists, officials alike, about WhatsApp. And the immediacy of it is hugely valuable. We talk to ministers who say that you know, stuff got really stuffed up in, in uh, Whitehall. You couldn't get a decision, so you just WhatsApped. Uh, another minister or a special advisor or something, and immediately the thing was unlocked. You WhatsApp someone in number 10, immediately the thing unlocked. You know, even just saying I'm running late for a meeting, it seems like a small thing, but actually it's hugely important because Whitehall lives on meetings and ministers are always running late for them because their diaries are always completely overbooked. Um, so there's so many ways in which it's valuable, but Beyond even the stuff that, that we've talked about, things that are in the report, the need for guidance, uh, the need for decent record keeping, the need for government to have good decision making just for its own, there are also ways in which WhatsApp distorts. Um, anyone who has uh, you know, <laughs> any groups on it knows that you end up with absolutely tons of groups. It's difficult to remember who's on which one. Uh, and so, therefore, you've got to kind of keep a track of that to make sure that the right people are on the right ones if you're making decisions. Um, we talked to people who said that it meant that you had overlapping groups, you had confusion about who was involved in which decision, people left out of it. Even the Dominic Cummings ones, there were some of these groups where the cabinet secretary wasn't even in them on sort of key aspects of COVID decision making. That's a big problem. But it's also the nature of it. I mean, WhatsApp is a massive stream of consciousness. And from looking at Dominic Cummings one, a lot of that comes from him. And then you get these tiny ones from the prime minister. Uh, that isn't necessarily always good decision-making. It might be if you're the person writing out all of this stuff and then eventually you get a yes because you've bombarded them to the point at which they agree. But there's also a point at which the conversation quickly moves on. Um, you know, anyone who's been in uh, or come back to their phone and found that they've got sort of 50 new WhatsApp messages, you might go back through the whole thing or whatever, but the conversation's moved on. You might reply to one of the ones earlier, but it's not the same as a sort of rigorous, let's go through the options and think about it. So again, going to your point about modern technology, absolutely. But there are other things about collaborative decision-making, making sure that you're getting in decent challenge, um, you know, red teaming, uh, as again, Dominic Cummings, to name him again, likes. There are lots of other things. I mean, you know, Google Docs, shared docs, different ways of collaborating and bringing together. So in terms of WhatsApp specifically, there are flaws to it in terms of decision-making as well as in terms of record-keeping. But the general point at which, yes, absolutely need to take the best of it, need to improve the way in which decisions are, are, are taken, and also need to find more and more ways to improve the speed of, of government decision-making as well as its efficiency and as well as its rigour. So it's, it's kind of about getting the balance. And I, I think the gist of our report is not don't do it, not at all. It's learn how you're doing it, think about how you're doing it, and think about what that means for the quality of decisions that you're, you're taking or the risks that you are putting yourself uh, in the way of. Brilliant. Yeah, completely agree with that, obviously. Obviously. Um, uh, James, I wanted to ask, uh, pick up a point that, that Hugo referred to about this performative nature of it. So, you know, in political groups, 
people post things seemingly in the expectation that they'll be leaked. But even within a closed group that people don't think it will leak, is there not a performative aspect there as well? So one of the people we spoke to for our report said uh, she was in a, a group with you know, senior officials and you wanted to be the first person to reply and you wanted to say, oh yeah, I'll do that, I'll do this. You know? And there's this kind of one-upmanship which actually perhaps isn't healthy because A, it means that person is overworked and is mm. always looking at their phone and you know, last thing at night and first thing in the morning, but also means that they're not doing what is the most important. They're yeah. doing the last thing that they were asked to do. Do you think, is, is, do you recognize that? Well, um, I think Huey's point about uh, MPs getting revved up and you know, going down dark tunnels of extremism, I think is a really fair point. And that is, but that is a point about the culture of, of Westminster and being in a tight-knit group of MPs and, and being under a lot of pressure. Oh, but I think it directly links into the technology. I mean, I think it's... Yeah, it's, no, it's, I, it's, 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 I, 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 I agree with that. But what I was just going to move on to is that you do choose how to use the technology. And that was not my experience during the pandemic of how we chose to, to use the technology. Uh, actually, um, <clears throat> at the very first meeting we had on the pandemic, someone said at the end of it, and of course there'll be an inquest into everything that we do. And it was a massive penny drop moment. It's like, of course there will be. And someone said it will be like Iraq. And I'm like, okay. And everyone behaved and performed as though they knew that they were going to be accountable at some point to a socking great big public hearing on this. And therefore, if there was a performative element, it was a benign one that everyone acted responsibly because they knew that they were going to be under scrutiny at a later stage. And if you look at the documentation, as I have done a lot, you can see that in a lot of the writing. Can I ask, Certainly, a, can I ask an unfair question? Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> that, were there WhatsApp groups about the WhatsApp groups? Um, no, what there what my second well, point there. text messages about the WhatsApp me, groups and signal let, messages about the WhatsApp groups. No, but groups. I, I was going to make a, a, di a different point, but, but kind of acknowledges your, I think, what you're getting at, <laughs> which is what there was definitely was highly curated WhatsApp groups mm. where, where, where grown-ups and senior and private office and senior people were in on those groups, partly because that was the, um, that, that was the important function of officials mm. was to be in the groups. But I'm sorry to labour the point, but there yeah. must have been less curated ones happening in the background. Why would there not have been? Um, because when I was in the Department of Health, we were very operationally focused. Right. You know, there was a lot to do, and we were really focused on the mission and getting it done, and there wasn't much scope for... And, and, we, and it was very important to keep a um, culture of positivity around mm. the whole project, because everyone was under a lot of pressure, and... Therefore, the scope within the culture where what we were doing for negativity and gossip just wasn't, mm, okay. wasn't there. So, you know, I think maybe, you know, what I saw was a really benign contribution from, from this sort of instant messaging mm. culture. And it was actually quite boring and uh, thoughtful. And, you know, some of it was, you know, could I have a cup of coffee type ephemeral stuff? But some of it was, you know, just getting the process done. Is the report ready? Is the meeting starting on time? Have you read the report? Can we have a chat about it? You know, it was just trying to smooth and get things done. And from that point of view, quite boring and respectable. Boring and respectable. Um, it's been said before in this building, I'm sure. <laughs> um, 
I want to pick up, though, on this kind of point about curated versus non-curated and your point about kind of having adults in the room. So one of the things we talked about in the paper is about uh, the involvement of kind of officials in WhatsApp groups and potentially administrators. So mm. Bayes, for example, the Department for Business, has guidance about the use of WhatsApp, and they say there should be a person who is tasked with administering groups, and if a conversation can be done better elsewhere, that person should move it on to a different, whether that's email or a meeting or whatever. Um, some of the political people we spoke to thought that there would be kind of reluctance on the part of ministers and or spads to have officials in all of the groups, obviously not, you know, not the Conservative Party groups, but even when they're discussing yeah. departmental so, business. But, that, but that, that's exactly, so in a ministerial diary, you have departmental meetings and political meetings. And we have meetings with spads where there are no officials in the room and they're given a different color and it's very clear this is a political meeting. There aren't that many of them, actually. But, but same with every other function, with email and what have you. Uh, and same with the WhatsApp group. So I typically wouldn't put together a WhatsApp group. My private office would do it. And private office would be in on it. And one of the reasons why um, uh, I was confident that it would be archived is that the private office were always in on there. So I didn't really particularly have to uh, worry about it. Um, but also had political WhatsApp groups. and. You know, they were of a different tone and they were more uh, political because that's what, what they are, but they serve a, a different purpose. And to your point on decision making, I think that's quite a good one. Um, listen, in government, decision making happens in several different ways. There's very little, the, the number of times where, as a minister or even a prime minister, you actually overtly make a decision, right? I am presented with three choices and I'm going for C. It's quite rare, you know, it's not, that's not how things happen. They do, decisions, as you implied, evolve. And what you are often trying to do is to nudge and clear people who might be perceived to have a micro problem with something and just to sort of edge things along. That is, that's certainly the role of junior ministers a lot. That's sort of what junior ministers spend a lot of their time doing. And that's the way that mm. government decision making is concerned. But a lot of that is quite administrative. Like, yeah. it's kind of like, I heard you had a problem with this oh, no, I don't, fine, we're going to continue. Yeah, and, and I appreciate uh, that actually a lot of what you're talking about is the sort of rolling conversation. I mean, in terms of decisions, the, the biggest one seems to come in the red box, and actually... Right, so that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So, so, and that, if I... I sorry, I didn't think... But, but that was administered and continues to be administered incredibly thoroughly on yeah. 19th century principles. I actually had a, um, uh, e an email-based, yeah. which is quite yeah. common... Uh, others had, they love their red boxes and walking around and ticking and being like Margaret Thatcher and writing things in the, in the edge. Mm. Uh, I wrote uh, my things. Um, but that, that is where the really formal decision-making process, where your ministerial, you know, kind of like yeah. view is officially and formally asked. And that has got very clear boundaries to it. Mm. I think there's still something interesting about the sort of resolving the political... Um, you know, I mean, obviously this week, cost of living, uh, windfall tax, all these decisions that led up to the Chancellor um, today, you know that in some of those, they can only be resolved at ministerial level. We know that, you know, civil servants talk to us all the time about you take things so far in terms of your policy advice, the meetings that you set up, the red box, all that kind of stuff. But eventually there's this almost black box moment where the decision happened. And we know that it, it sometimes can be in the tea rooms in Parliament or at a dinner party on a Saturday night mm. at a minister's residence, you know, where those political thorny problems are resolved from government. And 
I actually think that, yes, sometimes that is going to be WhatsApp. It's just whether or not then aspects of that get into the historical record in some fashion or another. Great. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of culture and the kind of what this does to relationships and stuff. But first, I thought I'd take a round of questions from the room if there are questions that people would like to ask. We have a roving mic. Any questions? We have one here. Uh, and then, okay, perfect. Two on this side. Brilliant. Uh, we'll take a couple and then we'll... I'm Billy James. My background is in business. Is what, does WhatsApp have a different effect on well-structured well organizations with a sensible strategy? and on chaotic public relations around organizations without a sense of strategy. Brilliant question, thank you. And the gentleman behind you had a question as well. Hi, my name is Ron Aguilar, I work in the NHS. Glad you got an email address. It's not, <laughs> it isn't easy. Um, so my question's about security. Have there been any concerns about the integrity of WhatsApp as a communication tool? Um, from a security perspective? And if so, um, would the panel like to discuss them and comment on them? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Any other questions from the room for now? Okay. Um, uh, I'd love to take security. Yeah, let's go security first and then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant question. I was thinking of it um, earlier. It's, um, uh, I mean, WhatsApp is supposed, supposedly end-to-end -end encrypted. Uh, we know that... Um, Nonetheless, security services managers manage to read it when required. We don't know quite how, uh, how Facebook does its encryption. Facebook is very cagey about how encryption works on, on WhatsApp, Facebook, WhatsApp being owned by Facebook. Uh, I think there's a lot of trust that goes into, goes into the use of WhatsApp. And I think when it's being used at the heart of government, I think there is not nearly enough consideration paid to that. There, were, I mean, there, were, um, there, was, uh, there was some talk recently of, of members of the cabinet using Signal as well. Signal which is, a, some say, a, a more secure uh, method of communication than WhatsApp, but it's also quite a lot shadier. So there's less, is, less is known, really, about how Signal is encrypted and, and, and precisely what happens to the information. Um, and, and so, and, I mean, while WhatsApp is, even though it's supposed to be, end -to, even though it is end-to-end -end encrypted, uh, it, yeah, as I said, it, it can get scraped off by, by security, security services somehow, presumably through Facebook, you also have, of course, vast access to it if you have somebody's phone, which is, you know, and, the, and the, the, there aren't really those kind of obligatory um, uh, phone-based security systems that you'd imagine you'd get on some kind of government-based security system if that was indeed what it was intended for. So I think it's a very real consideration, yeah. Was, were you ever told anything about the security of, of WhatsApp messages? I, no, I didn't have a specific security briefing on it, but uh, you know, the, inc the encryption is said to be very good. I... I mean, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't think that there is a, I, I don't think I have anything to say about the relative security of leaving your red box on the tube, um, sending the email accidentally to the wrong Rifkin, or, um, uh, <laughs> or um, you know, um, blurting stuff out when you're drunk. You know, there's loads of things that are security, security issues. Can I just yeah, on security? So when we did the research on the paper, we spoke to someone who had worked on on government security, and they told us that, kind of to your point, the app is less important than the device. And so if the device is compromised in whatever way, whether that's literally someone is has hold of it, or uh, you know uh, they're using the Pegasus software to get into it, or whatever it might be, then it doesn't matter whether you're using WhatsApp or Signal or whatever. If your phone is compromised, your phone is compromised, and. 
that obviously raises questions about these personal phones as opposed to government phones, because government phones potentially are clunkier and older, but they will have greater uh, security stuff built into them. I'm not an expert but on this. But the, the nature of the app, though, if, I have a, if I have a cabinet minister's phone number, and I have a few, I can generally see when they last checked their phone. Mm. You know, that tells me when they're leaving meetings. That yeah. tells me when, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, incredibly, it's incredibly porous in, in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, uh, Well-structured organizations versus... So I think, I, uh, it's a really good question. I think culture trumps strategy every time, as someone once said. And I do think culture is really important. So I think, I think, I, I think I'm agreeing with you, but in a slightly different way. Um, and um, you know, these you know, new, new technologies, new media, they always amplify what's already there. And if you've got a um, flaky, uh, irresponsible culture in your organization, that will be borne out in the way you use digital communications. And if you've got a thoughtful, purpose-led organization, then, then that's how your communications will be. So on that point, I mentioned culture earlier, one of the things we've talked about a lot at the Institute for Government recently is about standards of behavior and proprietary in government. And one of our lines is that that, uh, that culture is set from the top. I think that applies here as well. So we know that the prime minister uses WhatsApp. We know that he uh, WhatsApps you know, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. He WhatsApps James Dyson. He discusses a lot of big issues on his personal phone, we, we are led to believe. Um, how much does that affect the approach of the rest of government? Does that, you know, his approach, his kind of uh, implicit guidance and leadership, does that define how other people approach the use of it? Uh, I would say, I, I think yes and no. I, I was actually quite struck. I mean, I think it goes to the chaos point, actually, a little bit. Um, how somebody, it's, it's not just about an organisation, it is also about how individuals do decision-making, and that affects their use of whatever tool it is, is, is at their disposal. Um, but I think it's also, I mean, it, in the sense of, especially when it comes to WhatsApp, it's also about how individuals use it compared to each other. I mean, the, the messages with Dominic Cummings, like I say, I thought they were fascinating for how much Cummings versus how short the Prime Minister. <laughs> Presumably, some of that was, he was pressed for time, he didn't actually need a lot to say, maybe he was just annoyed with having all of these, these messages. But... It, you get the impression that he's more terse in his responses. I don't know. Maybe he sends long, you know, very long WhatsApp messages with loads of gifts to, to other people, just, just not to Dominic. Um, but I think that is also really relevant to setting the culture. Like I say, it's, it's sometimes about the culture set on a particular channel and how much that's then dominated by people, how they're using it, the way in which they're using it. But yeah, of course it's going to be set from the top in some respects. If you know, you have a prime minister who comes in and says, I hate WhatsApp, no one's using it, then other people still will, but they're not going to engage with them as much with it. On the other hand, if you have a prime minister who comes in and says, I hate email, I hate meetings, Tony Blair and the Sofa government, then of course that's going to be exacerbated because people, it's the same, people want to be in the room where it matters. And if that is the app or it is the actual physical room, that's where people are going to get drawn to. So, yes, there is a kind of replication of, of behaviour that gets set from the top. I mean, it matters because, look, would the Prime Minister write a letter to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia with nobody else reading it? No. Would the Prime Minister have a phone call with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia with nobody else reading it? Probably not, oh, hearing it. Uh, would the exchange 
uh, WhatsApps with nobody, at least on this side, reading it, very possibly. Mm. Now, that's huge. That's not, that's not a small thing at all. And so it's the, bl it's the blurring of the lines. You know, I said before that the thing about WhatsApp, you're talking about replacing both the, the chat in the corridor, but also the, the committee meeting. And it's the blurring of the lines between the two, that in what capacity is the prime minister acting when he sends a text message to, you know, somebody in the White House or to Dominic Cummings or to James Dyson? Is he acting in the capacity of prime minister? Is he acting in the capacity of Boris Johnson? And, I mean, pre-WhatsApp, those lines were generally pretty clear, and now they're, they're non-existent. So I think that does matter quite a lot. So can I come in and just push back against both those answers? Because you're both coming at it from your assumption that there's a grand conspiracy and that WhatsApp is an enabling agent for conspiracy. Chance would be a fun. We're <laughs> coming at it from, from Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um, I, my experience is, is slightly different, and I have a slightly different perspective. Listen, when you're a minister, particularly in a pandemic, but at any time, one of the things you're trying to do is to get your message across to your system somehow and to take people with you and to make them feel energized and included and trying to encourage collaboration and to people working together positively with creativity. And you know, one of the WhatsApp um, groups we had, which was you know, it's quite well known, which was a COVID task force, uh, WhatsApp, where there were 30 or 40 or 50 people on it. And we would have meetings uh, every day at three o'clock at the, at the time. And then there would be follow-up. And then there would be like reorganizing the meeting. And then there would be, and, and messages that went into that group were incredibly powerful because you were trying to get your key people all on the same page, all feeling that their um, concerns had been listened to, that their um, uh, evidence had been validated, that it, they were part of a, of a bigger thing. That's the bit of WhatsApp that I thought was really helpful. And it, it comes back to the culture question. It slightly depends how you want to use it. Now, we could have easily done it using email blasts, or we could have, I don't know, used um, voice message and, and sent them out to people. You know, there are, I don't think it's totally channel specific, but definitely instant messaging we found, you know, in terms of trying to bring together that kind of teamwork, really, really useful. So on that group, though, with 30 or 40 people, did you know who all of those people were? Could you see their names? Could you see... Well, certainly, certainly yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I was in those meetings. Right. Um, uh, early in the pandemic, we'd have had some people in the room and some people on Zoom, as it typically happens, and they were all the absolutely the, the key people. Did, yeah. it, did it leak? No, I don't think it did. Do you think it leaked to places other than the press? I mean, because there would have been... Well, I mean, and, and how, can, well, how can you know it let's say that, that, um, So I don't think it leaked because what we were doing was so important and so delicate, and the people involved mm -hmm. had, had um, you know, an awareness of how important it yeah. was. But part of the reason for having those people in a group like that was so that they would be messengers into their own organizations. Right. So you know, they were all ambassadors for yeah. you know, you know, the head of PHU or the... You know, it was a mixed group. So everything is said is said in, in, in full mindfulness that it's going to spread further. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're, yeah. yeah, it's a leadership tool, um, yeah. which, you know, when you're, you know, without that kind of mechanism, you know, ministers are sort of locked up like sort of uh, Chinese empresses, you know, behind the curtain, you know, unable to sort of reach the machine. Mm. That's not very good in a pandemic when you need to be really clear and emphatic and make, uh, and give at least if not decisions, at least clear guidance of where, of where we're trying to get to. Great. Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions from people online. Um, so, Lord Bethel, one from Mikey Smith from The Mirror. Um, Hello, asking, um, the phone you used to conduct conversations with stakeholders during the pandemic, 
was described variously as lost, broken, and given to your niece with the loss of many of the WhatsApp messages. Could you clear up what happened to the device, and do you now keep better backups? Yeah, I'm not going to waste my time with that question. What a pointless question. I've got a witness statement. It's all spelt out really clearly in that, Mikey. So give it a read, and if you still don't understand it, I'll walk you through it. Um, and a question for the panel as a whole, is the transparency of government compromised? Um, so I, we've said, you know, if we're focusing on decision making, we're focusing on government in the moment, but what about down the line? What about FOI? What about transparency? What about record keeping? Is the transparency of government compromised when using communication tools that are not within a secure, approved, archived platform? This is from an anonymous person. <laughs> How ironic. Um, Look, if you look back at um, the historical records, the, the key difference has not necessarily been the platform. It's actually been the loss of guidance and controls. And, and some of that is that it was all time-consuming. You used to have, um, you still do, but uh, you used to have many more departmental record officers. You used to have a paper file. You used to have three copies of it. One was in the archives, one was in another place in the department, and one was being used day to day. And then people would call them up. Um, and, you know, people were there to just make sure everything went back into the file. Um, that said, the files got lost. The files got locked in a cabinet where they lost the key to it. Um, you know, there would be different kinds of files. And in terms of transparency, I remember a conversation with the Treasury a few years ago where we had to persuade them to keep Geoffrey Howe's files because they're like, oh, but the same files are already in the Prime Minister's. We're like, yeah, but those didn't have Geoffrey Howe's remarks on them. So you still need those other ones. So even then, the weeding that goes on loses some of the actually more interesting aspects of government because, you know, there's so much that government produces that the weeding process would then lose sorts, lots of different things. What you had then with the start of um, emails, but also just electronic documentation more generally, was just chaos, and part of that was down to you know the loss of a decent filing process. They tried in the beginning to print out the you know emails and the documents and, and just do it in the same way. Um, but some of it was also down to the technology and the complete failure of the technology companies um, and of the various projects in government to produce decent systems. So you've ended up with what we call the pile, which is just this mass of you know, really difficult to sort through um, electronic information from uh, sort of late 90s, early 2000s for quite a long period of time in government. And actually, from historians' point of view, it means that you've got tons of information because they kept too much at times, but it's very difficult to navigate. And all that means is, again, we're going to have to innovate. Historians are going to have to invent new search tools in the right code in order to search their way through this stuff. And I think the same is going to be true of WhatsApp. It is very difficult to then, if you've got 30, 40, however many people on a WhatsApp group, even if it's just been going on for a few months, let alone some years, you're talking, I don't know how many messages, and it is a linear conversation. The search term on WhatsApp is pretty rubbish, but again, you will develop tools in order to be able to use those and search through them. So. Yes, there are all, always problems in any kind of record keeping in government. Um, in terms of the transparency for future historians, it's about the ability of historians to sort of search through it. I think the problems, as we say, is the more immediate. It's this clash of FOI um, that we've seen pretty much since the, the Act came into force and, and the frustration that it feels in government. And actually, a lot of that is down to the culture of our government. We, 
it is still quite a closed shop and it's not conspiracy, it's not just the politicians, it is also a feeling from a lot of the civil servants. They push back against the idea of having more transparent policy advice because they say, well, politicians won't want to talk to us, they won't want to get the advice. So um, that transparency issue, that's more around that, it's around the court cases. Um, and, and for historians, I'm just of the view, eventually we will get whatever we get and you just have to make the best use of it because you know, you go back to any stage in history, there are going to be gaps in what you're looking for. Um, what we want is just to make sure that the, the, the record keeping that is there is good for actually effective government at the moment and for transparency when it comes to inquiries and so forth. For the historians, ideally, I just want everything and historians can work yeah. out whatever. Um, but that's, that's our or their problem to fix in the future. It's that transparency issue is about accountability, first of all, including to Parliament. We're not really talked about Parliament. Sorry, that's a bit of a yeah, rant. Yeah. So, so listen, I think you put that very well and, and very reasonably. And, and I'm a historian by background. And there is a bit of me that just wants everything. And at some point in the future, we'll have like our eyeballs will record everything and it will go on some mega computer and you'll have your algorithms in good shape with, your, with the you know, AI, and you'll be able to search and find exactly the moment that, you've, that, that was needed for writing your history. Okay, so that's great, and that the historian in me um, is, is happy by that vision. But just to sort of take the discussion on a bit, there is a role also for privacy. So one of the problems is um, you don't want everything that you are thinking and saying seen by everyone else in the future. Let me give you a couple of examples. There, there are times when you might not have understood something. Um, I was the natural sciences minister. I have a history degree. There were plenty of meetings where I didn't fully understand everything, and I needed to push back and say, terribly sorry, you're just going to have to say all that all over again and a bit more slowly. Now, that's not something, you know, if I have to type, hi, private office, you're going to have to get them back in and get them to run through that <laughs> with me slowly. It's not something I really want to see in your archive, right? It would be extremely <laughs> valuable to future ministers. I, I'm sure it would. To it, understand it, that it's but, okay to ask basic questions. But it's quite questions. claustrophobic for, for the, for the yeah. minister or the official yeah. to the point that you might not do it, which would itself be a poor. Or there might be a moment when you're seriously questioning someone's piece of advice. There were plenty of moments when, when you know, the clinical advice came in and I... You know, I just didn't agree with it. Now, I'm not a clinician, and it's not, uh, but I am the minister, so you're, you're, you're trying to navigate this difficult balance. But it is your role as clinician, as, as the minister, to push and question the science and to find out, um, you know, if, if they really have got things right. But that dialogue is really delicate, and I'm not sure if it's helpful to do that, have that dialogue in the knowledge that everyone's going to read about it in six to eight months' uh, time. I have, I have a real problem with that. Uh, I, um, I appreciate that it's, always, it's a major hassle having somebody looking over your shoulder when you're running anything, doing anything, uh, particularly, if, uh, particularly if, if you're making mistakes, particularly if there's stuff you don't understand. That's what government is. You know, we, don't, we're not, we don't live in, in, in some you know, sort of benevolent dictatorship where decisions are made and things are done for us and we, and we don't get to see how. Uh, when, our, when, our, when our leaders make mistakes with, with the best of intentions, we should know about it. This is what, this is what a democracy is. It, I, I agree with you. Um, it's not, always, it's not, not a performative art either. You don't, you're not doing all of your work on a, on a stage that is going to live forever. 
Um, well. And if you, if you want that to be the way you run government, that every, every single conversation and every single question mark and every query about someone's performance and every, every this is going to sound like a silly question type well, moment, okay, but if, if you know that all of that is going to be you know, in the public realm within mm -hmm. a short period of time, you have to live with the consequences right. of on but decision making. If I may, very, very tiny, quickly. <laughs> if you don't want that, you've got to have very clear lines about when you do have that and when you don't have that. And WhatsApp is the exact opposite. So I'm going to stop this conversation because I feel like a tennis umpire. <laughs> I want to um, go for questions in the room, but I think you know we could clearly continue this. Yeah. But, but please, um, Penny, gentlemen, here and then. I actually would love to continue that question as well. Um, just to make a few pointers about the Pegasus stuff. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. it, WhatsApp is one of the key attack vectors for Pegasus, and the evidence that you know Boris Johnson was exchanging messages with someone who may or may have not already been targeted by Pegasus 12 months ago, and the news story as of last week about number 10 potentially being a target of Pegasus itself, sort of leads the question as to how long was that on the user's device or not. So. Um, but the question, I think your point around privacy is, is spot on. I think users should have a form of privacy. But I think the point is to be made around, you've mentioned that the communications have been formal and quite boring. Um, and having those security you know, exchanged and potentially archived to make decision making and the tracking of decision making very formal is you know, something that, from a personal perspective, you know, discussion of COVID regulations is you know, what we expect to be done. But the conversations and your questions you were asking, surely it's easier to control a closed communication group than it would be doing the communication on WhatsApp where there's no restrictions on screenshots, on copy and paste, anything like that. So you would have less control if the conversations happen on WhatsApp than you would if it was happening on a closed, secure comms platform. Okay. Do, you, would you, do you have any thoughts on that? We'll take one more question and then we'll come to that. Yeah. So. Hi, I'm Tony Travis from the LSE. Um, two things, really. One is, I suspect, underlying the previous conversation, there's any organization, not only government, where things don't go well, will want to keep that quiet. And the issue, it seems to me, is does WhatsApp make that easier? I mean, at some level, does it well, make it easier? No. <laughs> right? But that's not what I want. I want to ask something completely different, which is that WhatsApp contains elements of sort of traditional phone conversation or text exchange and a meeting. And given that Parliament, and I know this is about government more than Parliament, but politicians are dispersed across the country. So it begs the question of whether WhatsApp and things like it will make it less likely that people will meet in person over time, and whether that would affect the way government and politics operated. Now, most innovations generally don't lead to the once and for all, nothing ever, you know, telephones invented, nobody ever meets again kind of thing. But, but given the way politicians use WhatsApp, it must be a way of them, as it were, for MPs to be in their constituencies uh, and not, and still to be able to rattle on about all the things they rattle on about without actually coming to Westminster to do it. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask James to answer the question about control closed group versus large group quickly, and then let's come to the question about changing sure. forms of communication. So very good question. Um, there's something called NHS Mail. Have you got an NHS Mail account? How do you find your NHS Mail account? 
So that's the answer to your question. <laughs> Closed groups, you can set them up. People don't like using them because they're clunky and inefficient, and they close you down, and you can't talk to people outside your group. The reason, to answer it quickly, the reason why I'm trying to make the case for WhatsApp in the round is that people find it useful, and we should listen to people and understand why they find it useful. I'm sorry, just because of time. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I was just more going to, to Tony's point, which I thought was um, really interesting in terms of that face-to-face. -face. And I just, I don't know if either of you know, does Jacob Rees-Mogg use WhatsApp? Um, I'd be surprised. That's a, that's a, it goes to an interesting point about, about that. Um, I think um, just in terms of that closed group thing, I mean, another, we've been talking about the evolution of technology here. And I think actually the thing that, it is about the balance of how you're using it, it is about the amount of how you're using it. I think that... We've got a sense, and again, I don't know, it's not been fully evidenced, but it has been in the stuff that has come out, that it has been used too much in the wrong circumstances, too chaotically at times. Um, and that's where we're wary, less so for the, the times when it's actually extremely valuable and, and some of the examples that, that you're giving. But I don't think it's going to be that or the pressure for, for guidance that actually decreases the either use of or the circumstances in which it's used, I do think it's going to be the leaking eventually because um, government is getting leakier and leakier, it feels. Um, and, it, you know, the screen grabbing option just makes it a lot easier. So I do think if, if any government decides to try and get a grip on that, WhatsApp is going to be one of the things that they target. And that doesn't mean they'll stop using it, but that might change the nature of how they use it. And it might be that they just move on to something else where you aren't so able to do that. But I think eventually that's probably going to be the, the area, which I think slightly goes to, to both of the points that you were making. Maybe you didn't do Tony's. Um, Hugo, I'm going to give you the last word. I mean, what do you think about the kind of face-to-face -face versus electronic communication, but also any other reflections on, on what we've discussed? Well, I mean, in terms of the face-to-face, -face, I mean, of course... <laughs> Once you ask the question whether it's possible to have MPs not coming to Parliament, just engaging digitally with democracy from wherever they are, you get very close to asking the question whether you necessarily need MPs at all and why we can't just engage directly <laughs> with democracy by ourselves. Uh, which, I mean, and, and, I mean, there are answers to that, but that makes you examine what MPs are for and whether they're really there to be people that you send to a place to represent you or whether you're elect electing the, the best, and best and brightest among you in order to be a representative. And if that's what MPs are for, that may require some change in culture. Um, I would say, look, I, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm very troubled by the lack of transparency around these sorts of communication. And I know they're not necessarily less transparent than, than a chat in a conversation, but I think if you, a chat in a corridor, but I think if you're reducing so much of the business of government to a chat in a corridor, you really are losing something, not just in terms of journalism, but as you said, also in terms of, in terms of history. What happens, I mean, what happens to the history books if, if Elon Musk buys it tomorrow and turns it off? That's the question I'd leave you with. What happens then? Brilliant. Well, I think that is a perfect point to stop. So thank you all very much. Um, I'm afraid, yeah, we have run out of time. We could have gone on much longer. I just will say a quick thank you to the panel, to everyone for being here, to everyone watching online, to our events team for making this happen. Uh, we will have a video and sound recording of the event on our website within 24 hours. And we have plenty more IFG events coming up, including next week, uh, Lessons Learned from COP26, and after the Jubilee weekend, the latest in our Data Bytes series, looking at how data is used in government. All of the details of those are on our website. 
So please join me in thanking the panel.